The Canucks had a very, very busy Canada Day. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by my co-host, Canucks Insider, Thomas Drance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drance, we're on a little early. We're on for two hours. Canucks Hour extended, mega size, whatever you want to call it. Canucks Hours. Very, very excited to be doing this uh, for the next couple of weeks because we are in full, crazy, active off-season mode right now around the NHL. Uh, and the Canucks got that started officially on Canada Day with a wave of very interesting news. It was a big day. So, as I understand it, Patrick Alvin and Emily Castongay set up shop early in the morning at Rogers Arena, and the deals began to trickle in. Now, obviously, Jim Rutherford was in touch over the telephone. I'm sure other staff members were consulting as as the day goes by. But, you know, three contracts right off the hop in Noah Juleson, Jack Rathbone, and... Of course, the other one whose name I'm Guillaume forgetting. Guillaume Brisebois? No, no. Oh, was he earlier than that? It was, he, was, he was with the Sheldon Dries wave a, a week earlier. The other guy was, um, anyway, whatever. It was uh, Will Lockwood, excuse me. There you go. So they get those three deals done first. And, you know, relatively straightforward deals. Pretty high American League salaries for Noah Juleson and Will Lockwood. Some upside there, but I think in both cases you're looking at players who... You want to start the year in the AHL, in my view. I know Will Lockwood impressed a lot of people with the speed and the willingness to hit, but I just don't see the offensive output to pencil him into a fourth line that's going to match or in any way look like the sorts of fourth lines that the best teams in the league rolled out. We just saw it. Like, we just saw Maroon, Perry, Belmar, Sturm, you know, Cogliano, Helm sort of be these huge huge parts of two teams that contested the Stanley Cup final. Like, the level of balance that those teams had was almost a defining characteristic. And if you're the Canucks, it's going to take some work to get there, right? Is Will Lockwood a day-one guy you want to pencil in at that level? Like, I don't think so. I don't think so. And if you want to have a more balanced lineup, you know, I I do think they're going to need other bottom six bodies. Guys guys with the sandpaper that Rutherford is, is talking about, even though Lockwood's speed game would seem to fit into that template. Nonetheless, in Juleson and Lockwood, I think you've got guys who you can look at as having everyday NHL player upside down the line, but you probably do want them spending a little bit more time in the American League, a little bit more development time. Juleson, uh, particularly interesting to me because he missed so much time in his 20s as a result of a really severe facial fracture. I thought his NHL performance last year was pretty good. Like There were some things I really liked in terms of the combination of him having really good feet, really good size, right? But, you know, I do think the pace of the NHL game wore him down ultimately, right? It was one of those comes up, has that rush of adrenaline, plays well, and then kind of faded a bit and had that one really tough game in his last appearance. High high HL salaries, those are those are good guys to have have done, like to have got done early. Jack Rathbone gets the two year deal, and I see our colleague Rick Dollywall reporting that Brad Hunt will test unrestricted free agency I think that was pretty much telegraphed you know I I think we talked about that even once I sort of had a sense that Rathbone would be on the 23 man which was the day prior to the signing uh anyway the Rathbone contract's interesting perhaps we'll hear more from him about it this week perhaps even on this show perhaps perhaps it's in the works we'll we'll um, see but 
you know, I, I think that's a, that's a bet that makes a ton of sense. And what was interesting to me as the weekend went along and I talked to more people about it, I actually think the Rathbone contract tells you a lot about the Canucks player development paradigm here, right? This is not just a upside bet. Like, if he hits next year, we get this other year at 850K where he's an everyday player and that's great value. I think there's more there in terms of, you know, the club recognized that not bringing him up toward the end of the year was suboptimal. Uh, it was just a result of, you know, Horvat goes down and they had that list of injuries. They needed to use their call-ups on forwards as opposed to defensemen. And and so Rathbone ends up holding sort of the short end of the stick. And if you want him to be an everyday player for you, at least an everyday roster player for you, right? You, you kind of have to give him the carrot in some ways that you were unable to give him last season. I think that's partly what the two-year deal is about, right? They wanted to benefit from the certainty and stability in the event that Rathbone plays up to his potential, but they also wanted to give him that stability and certainty to realize his potential. Now, if he goes through the inevitable tough couple of weeks that any 23-year-old playing for their, you know, their first full NHL season goes through, it's not going to hit his pocketbook. You know, at the very least he's got this guaranteed NHL salary. I think they really wanted to be conscientious about making sure that he gets into camp with some swagger and some, you know, a sense of belonging in the show. An hour later, they announced the coaching changes. How much do we want to get into all this stuff? Let's, or do you want to l- go straight? L- to let's Besser? run. L- l- we'll run through the timeline of it, but let's save the analysis on the other things and let's get to the Besser. Yeah, because that the, to me, I mean, it was the last one, and, and we're running through the ones that came yeah. before it. But it's also the headliner. We got right? two hours though. <laughs> we do have two. Hours. <laughs> I'm adjusting. We'll save that stuff. I'm for adjusting later. We'll to save my new it. Link. We'll save it for later. Um, okay, so they announced a bunch of changes in the coaching staff, and looks like, by the way, Chris Johnson reporting that Curtis Sanford heavily. Uh, under consideration, like seems to be the front runner for the Toronto Maple Leafs' um, vacant goalie coach position. That would be a pretty significant promotion for a for a goalie coach who's been with the Canucks at the American League level since the 2017-18 campaign. Uh, obviously, the work with Spencer Martin. Spencer Martin, yeah, that's a nice feather in your cap as yeah. uh, as an AHL but goalie Thatcher coach. Thatcher Demko, too. He yeah. had Thatcher Demko as well. So, pretty good track record, worked closely with Clark. I, I, hard to understate how big a loss that would be. That would be a pretty significant loss, especially especially considering how well the Martin experiment went. Like the Martin's development under Sanford last year, and Sanford gets a ton of credit for it internally. When when the Canucks themselves talk about what happened with Martin, from guy they acquired for literally a bag of pucks to um, you know everyday backup goaltender uh, apparent going into this offseason, Sanford's name is never far from the first sentence talking about that process. So. That would be a that would be a good get for the Toronto Maple Leafs and a, and a tough blow for the Vancouver Canucks, who would surely have to replace that body within Ian Clark's goaltending department. All right, and then finally they reached the agreement with Besser, Brock Besser. We were laughing about it a little bit on the show because I I was reporting that there was a sense of frustration building on both sides that you know talks had reached something of an impasse on Friday and that the club was very seriously having internal discussions about filing for club-elected arbitration on Saturday, two days later. And credit to you, Jamie, because you took that, you took that baton and you said, you know, the arbitration deadline seems really meaningful to me. That's where it feels like the team's leverage lies, not on the qualifying offer side, but but right here. And, and then 
I, you know, you sort of kicked it back to me and I joked that, yeah, you know, having covered a lot of these negotiations, the level of frustration we're getting from both sides, the way it's seeping out into the public today almost makes me think a deal is close. And we laughed (laughs) and we moved on with the show. And in retrospect, I think that was really good analysis. Nailed it. And it's all you. Well, well, thank you, Drather. Yeah, but I think your logically <laughs> came in handy there. And I mean, to be fair, and I, I saw some people, you know, oh, the media was reporting it was at an impasse, and the next day it gets done. Well, as a lot of people said, you know, it only takes one phone call to break an impasse, right? It only takes one side to move, and the the kind of classic hockey cliche, or not just hockey, but in general cliche of deadlines make deals. I mean, there's a reason we all say that over and over again, because it's true, because you need those pressure points to spur a little bit of action. And it it did just really catch my ear that we hadn't heard the club seriously float or reporting that the club was seriously considering going to arbitration basically until that. And again, that was just kind of the leverage point they had to use. That was the button they had to push in these negotiations. And I don't know if it was strictly that kind of looming threat that, that spurred movement on either side and got the deal done, but it makes sense that going into that deadline, which was would have been on Saturday to, to file for club elected arbitration, it makes sense that a deal gets done right before that. And when you look at the deal and you step back, it's pretty hard to avoid the, you know, the term win-win when you're evaluating this deal. I, I think the player has a lot of reasons to be happy. I think the team has a lot of reasons to be very happy, especially considering all of the potential landmine other outcomes that existed, you know, if it wasn't going to be an extension, a multi-year extension. There was only one really favorable outcome. The other the other outcomes were varying shades of bad as we as we've gone through ad nauseum over the course of the past couple months. This is an actual good outcome and it's a good outcome for both sides. Win-win's the right way to look at it. Now, on Saturday itself or sorry, on Friday itself Friday, on yeah. Canada Day. I think the team came up massively. Significantly. Like as much as an, an additional ten to fifteen percent on their offer, I think I think it was a significant push from Vancouver to up their offer and, and get this done, which I think gives you a good sense of how important it was to them that they, that they manage Besser's value in the right way, that they avoid taking a player who's been through a lot this year to uh, through a process as acrimonious as arbitration that they didn't end up needing to qualify him and kicking the can down the road and, and agreeing to a one-year $7.5 million contract that would have left Besser in, in the sort of position of, of continuing to be viewed as a distressed asset from a trade value perspective around the league. The club came up significantly and in so doing bought the term they wanted, three years. They always wanted three years, right? I mean, I, I heard some rumblings that maybe there had been a four-year discussed, but I think they always were really focused on the three years. And so they got that, and they got a very favorable contract structure. Uh, flat year-over-year, year, super straightforward, very minimal trade protection in the last year. Right. None of the signing bonus kind of machinations that we discussed as a potential solution yeah. to it, right? Just just the salary, as you said, flat, all of that. Although Simple. that makes me wonder if you could have paid for a lower cap <laughs> right i mean that there's there's part of me that wonders if um you know i'm look i'm sure rutherford's bosses are happy but there's part of me that wonders if you could have got an even more favorable settlement with uh with a structure that was maybe a little more team friendly and that doesn't actually matter to any part of your organization except the you know except the bean counters so good outcome for vancouver and look this is a really this was a really complicated situation for rutherford and alvin to navigate they inherited you know, I, I think to describe Besser's seven and a half million dollar qualifying offer as a poison pill 
is probably a step too far. But as I wrote over the weekend, like sushi left overnight, I think is probably about right. Yeah, right. It was, it was unappetizing, uh, I, to, to say the least. You, you'd, it wouldn't kill you, but you'd have indigestion, right? Like that's sort of the situation they were facing. And instead, they managed to come to a place where Besser's value is enhanced, where there's a real chance that you get value out of this contract, maybe even surplus value. It's probably not a super efficient contract, but there was no world where they were getting a super efficient outcome with the way that this was positioned. And so you got to be really happy with that, especially because it's it's a demonstration of the sort of deal-making prowess that this new management group can bring to the table. And, you know, I think that... I don't think we'd seen it yet, right? Like that specific side of it, we hadn't seen. Well, we saw them deal Hamannick, which yeah. was a huge hit, but that was almost like one team just had a wildly out of sync um, valuation on the player. We we also and saw that, them. That was a trade negotiation, but not a contract negotiation, right? Correct. And the other contracts we've seen have been more about recruitment, right? Like the Kuzmenko right. one. Extremely impressive that they landed the player, but it's not about working through a really difficult contractual situation. It was about selling the player. Same thing with the European free agents, right? CHL free agents. It's about being a good landing spot for that player. This was, we have to get really creative and deal with a potentially really fractious, really kind of conflict heavy, uh, or, or at least something that had the potential to to uh, involve a lot of conflict between the player and the team. And we have to figure out a way to get it done so that everyone's happy at well, the end of the day. And, the, and sort of the closest analogy to a situation that I think the club faced earlier this season would have been the Halak overage, right? Where, you know, if you could have found a way out of that, that would have been Herculean, right? There was no way out of that. There just wasn't interest. But, you know, to me, that would have been an example. If they'd made that trade, I would have been like, oh my goodness, that's incredible. But they they, they couldn't. There just wasn't a market for him. Now, I think they've shown a little bit of that sort of classic Rutherford deal-making that, that I think was a really key part, no, I don't think, that was a really key part of what that group accomplished together in Pittsburgh. And look, this is a fantastic outcome for the team. It was the only solution. It was the only solution. Came in at about the level we would have expected, considering what it looks like, uh, just quality work. And from reading Ian McIntyre's interview with Besser, sounds like sounds like there's a weight off of Besser now, he can sort of just look ahead to playing with with some simplicity, with some security, with some commitment. There's no contract year for a few years here. He's just going to be a UFA in three years. So you know the 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 adversarial portion of working through your first seven years, it's kind of in the rearview mirror. You could get the sense, like it leapt off the page reading IMAX interview with Besser on Sportsnet.ca that. This mattered a ton to the player as well. And as we think about through, you know, what it means for this deal to be a win-win, as you said, security for the player, a weight off of his shoulders, gets to be a UFA, going to his UFA year at uh, at the age of 28, obviously gets the, the security of the money uh, for the next three years. That's all really important. From a team's perspective, yeah, this is, you know, you can look at solving the qualifying offer. I know I think you called it a home run in your piece at The Athletic. The money itself, you're not going to call a home run probably, right? It's not going to be like, wow, I can't believe we have Besser for only 6.65, but it's it's a reasonable it's deal for the, the player. It's not the second coming of the, the Burroughs contract. No, exactly. But, no, it's not even a hyper-efficient solution, to be totally honest with you, right? I, I think the likelihood is, the overwhelming likelihood is, is that Besser is about a $6.5 million player exactly. anyway. Exactly. That's what, a, that's what a top-line winger, 
uh, who scores at the rate that he does sort of is like that's kind of what market value is. So it's a market value settlement, but a market value settlement is so much better than the uncertainty that comes attached to arbitration or than non tendering him or than trading him at a low ebb of his value or than signing him for one year times 7.5 and kicking the can down the road and continuing to have a distressed and inefficient asset on the books. Now, if Besser goes out and scores the 30 goals that I think he's well, you know, very capable of, could be 40, depending on where he lines up on the power play. Uh, like, I'm buying that. I'm buying Besser stock. If he's on the half wall next year because of other changes made in the lineup, which, you know, you think we'll talk about that a little <laughs> bit this week? I we I guarantee you, yeah, we already have the question coming in. Uh, what does this mean for JT Miller? We'll, we'll get to that. Don't worry. We will get to that. We're, we're, we're all Miller seagulls right now. <laughs> Just like, Miller, Miller, Miller. Anyway, with Besser, you know, if he hits that level, all of a sudden you've got a really positive trade chip, which would not have been possible with any other mold of solution. And that's really vital for a club whose primary task here is grafting value onto every level of this club. For me, from the club's perspective, the two things that really stand out beyond just, you know, solving the uh, the knot of the qualifying offer and getting it to a reasonable number. But beyond that, there's two things that stand out. One, you got it done in a timely fashion, right? Like it is draft week. It is the next week is free agency. It is the busy, hyperactive time for NHL teams in a summer where, you know, for a lot of reasons, we're anticipating it could be very, very busy from a player movement perspective for the Canucks. You got this off your plate. You're not dealing with it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry about some arbitration date in August or is an offer sheet going to come in for Besser or any of that. It is done and dusted. That's huge to kind of set yourself up for, you know, the next couple of weeks here. And the other thing that really stands out to me is you got to maintain the relationship between the team and the player, you know, and Patrick Alvin, when he spoke on Friday, he was obviously very glowing about Brock Besser, right? Saying he's a huge part of the franchise. We think he can be even better. We think he can be, you know, a long-term part of this franchise. And if you started to go down the road of of arbitration or even just the qualifying offer and doing it again next year, who knows what that relationship turns into. So to me, this keeps the options open. Yeah, it's a three-year deal. And hey, maybe he he has a, you know, a great couple of seasons and they do explore the, the possibility of trading him. That's certainly a realistic possibility, but it also sets you up to make this a longer than three-year relationship, right? Like, it, it, you preserved that possibility in a way that I don't think going to arbitration would have done. And as you said, part of the benefit of maintaining that relationship is I think you're putting Brock Besser in a position to succeed next year because he has the security. He has that vote of confidence. He knows exactly what's going on. We can talk a little bit more about what his role might be and, and upside and all of that. But, I mean, I'll say this. On a personal level, as just somebody who really likes watching hockey, I'm really excited to see what Brock Besser can do next year. Because you think about how this year, or sorry, this coming season is going to be very, very different uh, than where he was going into last year's training camp, right? With going into a contract year, uh, not fully healthy. Then there was the coaching change. Obviously, everything going on with his family off of the ice I think he has a chance to have a really, really big kind of return to form season. As you said, you know, we, we you often use the the language of prorated over 82 games. He's a 30-goal scorer, and, you know, sometimes we get pushed back in the inbox. Like, well, okay, but he hasn't actually hit it. This could easily be that year, right? Like, this sets him up. He's 25. You know, I, I, I just, I don't want to put too much pressure on him just a few days after he signed this contract, but it just seems like, 
man, there are a lot of factors pointing in the direction of we could see a big Brock Besser year. There's this overwhelming temptation with Besser analysis in this market to focus on what he isn't, right? Which is he's never hit 30 before. Okay, but he scores at that level consistently when he's in the lineup, right? He's not fast. Okay, but he's deceptively strong. He wins a ton of puck battles. He's the winger on this team most capable, like non-JT Miller category, because JT Miller I'm listing as a center for the purpose of this argument, but he's the winger on this team best suited to playing in a matchup role. I mean, that's you can't take that away from a guy. He's defensively reliable enough to do that. His hockey IQ's off the charts. His wall work is excellent. He's got a shot capable of beating set NHL goaltenders. He's one of like 25 guys in the world for whom that is consistently true. And, you know, he's become a really solid playmaker too. Like that part of his game has evolved massively over the course of the last two years. We're only a year removed from him being clearly Vancouver's best player, yeah. best forward, best skater. Clearly. I would say best skater. Right? Yeah. He was better than Quinn Hughes for in, sure the, he was. in the North in 2021. Year. Yeah, yeah, 100% he was. So it's not like we haven't seen it, you know? Um, I think the struggles of last season, especially those first two months where his back uh, injury that he sustained in the offseason was just clearly limiting his foot speed. You know, Besser's not a player with a, a, a step to drop. Without it, we saw that he was a very different player. Once that changed, last few months of the year, he was extremely effective. And he was extremely effective despite an understandably heavy heart. Besser's really good. Yeah. He's going to show that to this market and the world. And I think the other part of it is uh, Bruce Boudreau is going to be here right from the jump. And Besser played really well for the most part under Bruce Boudreau. And Bruce Boudreau is a guy who puts good offensive players in a position to succeed and tends to get really good performances uh, out of offensive players like Brock Besser. So I think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. And you know, just back to your point about a good playmaker, defensively reliable, all of those things. It's not the sexiest thing to be like, hey, this player who just got 6.65 is really well-rounded. But it's true, and it adds value to your team. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, maybe not. it's not the headline that people envision necessarily, but guess what? It's really good to have well-rounded players up and down your lineup, and, who, and Brock who also Besser are, is certainly that. Who also are high-end one-shot scorers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, that, that like, don't, don't hide the headline. There is a sexy headline here. It's just that also, you know, what the flow brings is, is you know, happens to have tangible all-around value in addition to the standout skill, which is that wrist shot, and which we'll see more of, particularly if he's on the half wall on the power play all season next year, which he should be. Lots more, lots more to get into, uh, as, as Drance is alluding to, potential other personnel changes that maybe have a, or, or a result of a domino effect here from the Besser signing. We'll get into that, but we'll take a quick break here. Really excited. Up next, we're going to chat with Jonathan Wall, of course, a former director of hockey operations, longtime front office employee for the Vancouver Canucks. Really looking forward to chatting with Jonathan Wall about a whole bunch of different things, so stick around to that. It's an extended edition of Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Trance here with you for an extended, mega-sized edition of Canucks Hour. We're on 10 to noon, all 
I don't say all day this week. Every day this week. That's what I'm looking for. Every day this week. Every day next week as well uh, to get you covered through the busy season of the NHL offseason. Full draft coverage. Full free agency, free agency coverage. You'll be able to hear it here right here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, also, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, people are clamoring for the JT Miller analysis. Don't worry, we will get there. We will absolutely get there. Uh, but as part of going to two hours for the next couple of weeks, we're, we're going to try to integrate some interesting guests onto the show that people might not hear from on a regular basis. And I'm really excited to chat with our next guest transfer, who certainly falls into that category, uh, Jonathan Wall, longtime front office executive with the Vancouver Canucks, was the uh, director of hockey operations, if I'm correct. I, yeah, think, it's direct- a, I think it's executive, executive director, director excuse hockey me. operations and analytics. And analytics. So there you go. Don't, so, don't shortchange uh, him a on significant, the title. significant portfolio <laughs> for Jonathan Wall. Uh, was part of the regime change that, that saw so much turnover in the front office, and uh, he's going to join us on the line. And you know, with with Jonathan Wall, I'm really interested to get into some of the Canucks specific things, but also just some of the trends in analytics and hockey operations and all of that that uh, that he witnessed during the course of his career. And we are now very pleased to be joined on the line by the former executive director of hockey operations for the Vancouver Canucks, Jonathan Wall. Jonathan, thanks very much for doing this. We really appreciate it. How's your summer going so far? Yeah, thanks, guys. I'm excited to be on. It's uh, it's going well. The The weather up in the Okanagan hasn't quite uh, cut up yet, but <laughs> yeah. it's, it's been a good summer so far. Well, we're, we're going through that here, too. Uh, it's, a, it's a gray, rainy day down here on the coast, John. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if it was a little bittersweet, maybe, but was it nice to have kind of a break over the Canada Day long weekend for a change? Because, as I'm sure you recall, it's a pretty busy time for uh, for NHL front office personnel. Yeah, no, it's always been a busy time and, and unable to uh, to do all the family stuff I want to do. But I was actually laughing because I had to I had to show a property on Canada today. So I actually <laughs> thought this isn't actually that far far removed from what I'm used to. But uh, I did get to enjoy the Peachland fireworks with my kids, which was uh, which was awesome. So it definitely was a bit of a better uh, better Canada day than most. John, I want to I want to ask you a general question here about the value of of cap space. Uh, cap the cap was something you worked with intimately day to day during the course of certainly the last decade and a half of your Canucks tenure. We saw a trade this weekend in the NHL uh, with the Tampa Bay Lightning sort of sending Ryan McDonough out to the Nashville Predators. It could be a cap neutral deal depending on what they do with I forget his first name, but the defenseman Myers Philippe I Philippe Myers. Yeah, Philippe Myers. Yeah. Um, in in handicapping those types of trades. How underrated do you think the value of cap space still is among those of us like Jamie and I who who discuss this league professionally? Well, I mean, having worked in Vancouver, I don't know that the Vancouver market undervalues <laughs> cap space. To be honest, to be honest. I think, um, but no, I, I mean, I think it is important. It allows for some flexibility for teams to you know to do what they want to do as they move forward. Um, but I also don't want to over overstate it where you don't want to necessarily leave cap space. You know, cap space is kind of like, you know, like milk, like once it's gone, you know, you can't, once it spoils, you can't reuse it. So you want to make sure that you're in a spot where you're leaving yourself some flexibility to do what you need to do, but also putting the best team on the ice and, and the best team that you can to be competitive. How have you seen the approach to cap space evolve or how did you see it evolve in your time in an NHL front office? Because, 
you know, you were you would have been working uh, with an NHL team when the cap came in. And I think back to in kind of the glory years for the Canucks, obviously the 2011 team and some of the interesting cap solutions uh, that the team found at the time to put uh, put together a really competitive team. How have you seen how NHL front, front offices approach cap space and just managing the cap in general evolve over the course of the last couple of decades? Well, I think, I mean, you're, you're, you're looking at the, the team you have and the team you want to build and trying to find that, again, find that balance of what you need to do. I think there's definitely more uh, recognition probably now that, that cap space is important and teams are more willing to use assets to, to get cap space. Um, and also, obviously, for the first time, we're really seeing teams sort of, I know the term they like to use is weaponize, but really use their cap space to acquire assets from other teams. John, one thing that, you know, is, I think, really poorly understood, including by me, is <laughs> is how the mechanics of LTI function yes. in, in, in the context of a trade. So I'm thinking about the Seabrook for Tyler Johnson trade or the Dadnov right. for Shea Weber trade as examples. And obviously this pertains to... To this market with with Michael Furland entering the last year of his contract, but I don't want to ask you about that specifically so much as I'm hoping you can illuminate for our listeners. If you trade an LTI contract to a team but don't take its salary back, the team acquiring the LTI contract can't quite benefit from it. It's not quite that simple. Are, are you able to simplify uh, simplify it as best you can for us and for our listeners? Well, you're right, Thomas. I mean, that, that's where a lot of the, the misunderstanding happens. You're not, you're not getting cap space when you make these trades. You're, you're moving uh, money that may be inefficient out to a team that has a different, different, uh, different need at that time. So on a, on a deal where you're moving a player who is on LTI to another team, you, they're, they're not gaining that cap space. They're gaining the space that they've created by moving the player off their team. So if, you, if we're a team that's looking to just pick up an LTI player, there's really no cap benefit. And in a lot of ways, there's actually a cap uh, a negative because you may be inefficient in how you capture your LTI space at the end. So it's really about the player that, for the team that's trying to create more space, the player that's going out. Um, and, and that player that's going out may be a more valuable to the team that needs them. So they may look at that and say, well, we're, it's worth picking up this player to, to get a player that we like better and move the LTI inefficiency off our books. So just to follow up and, and clarify it, if Weber if Weber has a higher cap hit than an Evgeny Dadnov, right? Right. The the cap benefit for the team acquiring Weber is not the surplus cap hit that Weber has that goes on LTI plus the Dadnov contract being subtracted. It's really just the subtraction of the Dadnov contract, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Because you're taking on the salary in the first place. So you either have the salary on your on the, the cap side or you have it on the LTI side but you don't get a double benefit by doing it. Here's another one that's really poorly understood. Off-season tagging, right? Like the yeah, off-season wow. tagging thing, I think is, yeah. we don't really talk about it, but you know, you see the, the Jack Rathbone deal get done, for example, over the weekend, just as an example, right? And yeah, it's below the line, but it does materially impact a team's cap flexibility going into the off-season. How exactly does that work? How relaxing is your summer now? compared to previous summers when you had to be hyper aware of it. Yeah. I mean, last summer was, was incredibly complicated and um, you know, the work that, that I think that we were able to do ended up being, you know, quite, quite impressive to be honest because of the number of, of issues we had to deal with. But you know, as you're trying to build out your AHL team, 
that's an area where you can really end up in a lot of trouble with your NHL team because those mm-hmm. one-way contracts or players, they get a prorated amount. So if you sign a player and in your mind, they are only going to be for Abbotsford or, or primarily going to be for Abbotsford. And you, um, you know, say they spent 75% of their time on the NHL, on the NHL roster last year, all of a sudden you might have a 75% of their, of their AAV on your summer cap. Right. So it's one of those things as you're, as you're trying to run the numbers, you're looking at your in-season cap, but also your off-season cap. And, and the word I, I sort of use a lot is sequencing. Like, how do you sequence those contracts to make sure that you don't end up in the wrong spot with your LTI or your, your off-season cap space? And that's a really, really confusing one, to be honest, because you don't get your space and your LTI. You either have your space or your LTI. So it's a matter of trying to move yourself into that right spot before you invoke LTI in the off-season if that's what you plan to do. In modeling out where this club stands, and I, you know, I, again, I'm trying to avoid asking you too specific <laughs> Canucks questions. I'm that, doing yeah. my best, but but yeah, thank you. In modeling out where this Canucks team stands in the wake of of some of the moves over the weekend, right? I, I'm now looking at a team that has, if I assume, you know, uh, if I assume like let's say a 950k average for the two RFA forwards that, that I'd expect to get qualified. I'm looking at 22 guys on the 23 man and about 5.2 million in cap space. Just, you know, obviously that number is super malleable depending on what decisions get made in the weeks ahead. But how would you sort of define that level of flexibility at this point in the offseason? Is it is it enough for sort of one big swing or or a, and a couple check or a couple check swings? Like how would you view sort of globally, how, how much flexibility a team in that type of situation has? I mean, I think the, the key thing is to look at less about the money you have and more mm. about sort of what you've already checked off. So right. by getting Brock signed, you know, you, you, you sort of locked in that amount, which then allows you to sequence your decisions and make decisions where you already have a huge piece of your mix already locked in at a set amount. Whereas if you don't have that done in advance, then it makes it hard as you're moving through the process to try to protect against having enough money to cover what you need in that situation and also do the other things you want to do. Like I said, you don't always want to be, you know, building this, this wall of protection and then realize afterwards that you've missed out on players you, you needed or could have had because you were, you know, unable to sign them because you were kind of protecting future moves. Jonathan, you know, I'm always curious, and, and by the way, we're in conversation here with uh, Jonathan Wall, former director of hockey operations and longtime member of the Canucks uh, front office. Uh, I'm always curious when a team is kind of getting together and the front office personnel are, you know, having their meetings and strategizing going into the offseason, you know, because here in the media and amongst fans, we uh, we like to speculate and we kind of throw ideas out there and some of them might be a little out of, out of left field. Some of them might be a little, you know, maybe unrealistic even is a word you might want to throw out there, but... What are those discussions like within a front office? And I mean, how wide ranging are those conversations and those, you know, maybe out of left field ideas that, uh, that come up in the front office as well? I mean, really, I, I don't think there's, there's many bad ideas, to be honest. I mean, you having a collaborative process allows you to, to take information from a lot of different people. And it may be something where, you know, one, one of your analysts or one of your coaches or one of your management group has an idea and comes up with it. And maybe at the beginning, it's not maybe what you want to do, but as you work through things, you kind of file that stuff away. And it may have been a, you know, a trade offer that was, that was discussed that at the time didn't make any sense. 
But when you can then maybe move another player out and replace it with a player that's available, all of a sudden that may change sort of how you move through the, move through the season. I mean, you, you know, you, you could go through most of the teams. There's probably two to three players on any team right now that you can have probably for free. So by kind of having those discussions and discussing that with your management group, it allows you, <clears throat> excuse me, to, to then sort of strategize like, hey, if we're to move player X out, but we know we can get player Y for a very low acquisition cost. Maybe we end up in a better spot down the road, even though the, the, the player Y may not be the, the exact player you want at that time. And one of the other things that uh, I wanted to get into with Jonathan was, you know, just the your perspective on the role of analytics and, and how it's changed over the last couple of decades. Because I think back to, you know, when I was a fan in the early part of, you know, the 2000s or the mid 2000s, and I wouldn't have known what analytics was. And now it's, you know, a major part of basically NH- every NHL front office. It's something that we discuss all of the time whenever a player is acquired or, or a player is moved or signed. It's always part of the discussion. How has uh, how have you seen the role of analytics change in NHL front offices? And what do you think NHL teams can do to make sure they're getting the most value out of analytics as a tool? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the biggest change um, from when I started looking at analytics originally, and, and I started to really, when I was studying it, looking at, at baseball and, and the data, and that's what struck me is, is the lack of data. And I think that's the biggest change and benefit now development is the fact that there's just so much more data available. So you have more information at your fingertips, there's more stuff you can do with it. I think through, through our experience and with the support, you know, with the Canucks from ownership and management, we created a, a, a situation where there really wasn't an analytics staff and a scouting staff or coaching staff. We tried to make it so it was one, one, um, one team. And that, I think, is the biggest change where there's not this competition anymore between you know, different factions or whatever. It's, everyone's working towards the same goal. And I think you don't need to prove it as much anymore. Everyone sort of understands what its value is and accepts it and you know, knows how to use it more. Um. A couple more questions here, Jonathan, just before uh, before we let yeah. you go. And I appreciate the time. I wanted to ask you about the uh, the Young Stars tournament in Penticton. Yeah, you know, as you, as you were talking about earlier, you're you're in the Okanagan. I know yeah. when you were with the Canucks, you were always a really important part of that tournament. And you know, I've I've uh, in the the reports in the media when the tournament was announced that it's going to be coming back, uh, I was also included that you're still going to be a part of that. Yeah. Just tell us a little yeah. bit more about your involvement and also, I mean, what that tournament means to you and what it means to uh, to the Canucks as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge it's a huge uh, part of was a huge part of my portfolio when I was with the Canucks. I was part of the group that met with the the city of Penticton and the venue. And we sort of designed the tournament and built it from scratch, really, and, and made it a, an incredible event for fans, but also for the players. Like, this is a big deal for, for the players. This is, for some of them, their first chance to pull on their team's jersey. For some, it's their only chance to pull on an NHL team's jersey. And so we wanted to deliver a first-class um, event and make it sustainable for the city of Penticton and for the venue and for the, for the NHL teams that want to participate. So when I, when I came back here, I, I sort of discussed with the venue about, you know, I had so much knowledge of, of the event and how it was going. I, I sort of said, hey, look, like, I kind of want to be a part of this. Is there any way that I can, I can be involved? And, you know, they, they said, yes, we'd like that. And then I went to the Canucks and talked to them. And I just wanted to make sure that we we're all comfortable with how this was going to work. And it, it's, been, it's been great. I mean, the, the, the staff at the, at the venue in Penticton is incredible. They basically are able to take this event and run it 
um, on behalf of the NHL team. So it's a great partnership there. The venue in Penticton is state of the art and probably one of the only venues around, maybe in the province that could actually host an event like this, where we've got enough dressing rooms, two sheets of ice, they have a full conference center so we can have meals, uh, meetings, we can have these special events that we're having and then the support from the city. So all in all, it's just a great partnership between, between all the parties to, to bring it back here. John, one more from me, and then we'll, and then yeah. we'll let you get on with your day. Thanks for your time and for sharing your insight with us. The 2010-11 Vancouver Canucks are a team that's fondly remembered here uh, in this city, as you know. And, you know, one, one of the parts that made that team work was some of the ingenuity. <laughs> that that was brought behind the scenes to the club's yeah. cap management in particular. A variety of NHL rules ended up changing following yeah. uh, following the way you guys, for example, handled your opening day roster. Um, yeah. You know, arguably, too, with the sallow Edler slight in hand, the Vancouver Canucks were the first team to do the Kucherov LTI thing in the playoffs. Um, you and Lawrence Gilman worked hand-in-hand hand, uh, running that cap, uh, running that team's cap, coming up with creative solutions day to day, what stands out to you when you recall the stress level, the work, the ingenuity that went to putting that roster on the ice? Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, and to Lawrence's credit, he, he brought me in and, and again, we talked about collaboration. We were able to work together with, with our whole management team and, and the support of our coaches and really come up with some, some neat ideas. And I remember in the summer, we were looking at our opening day roster and I don't know how that year, I believe our the season opened on maybe a Wednesday. We didn't play till Saturday. Mm. And we were looking at that and the light bulb just kind of came on a bit where it was, wait a sec, we don't even have to play for three or four days once we set our opening day roster. So we were able, once that went on, it allowed us to really move some pieces around in the summer to really get that, that really good capture to start the season. And then as we went through, it was, trying to maximize what we could, but always staying very much on top of it. And, and then as we got towards the deadline, I mean, we knew, as, as, we do, as every team does, I mean, we knew to the dollar where we were. And when we pulled, we were able to do the Chris Higgins trade, uh, which was, I thought, a, a great trade at the time for the team. Um, we were, I mean, we were right down to it. But we, we sort of uh, took a chance and said, you know what, like, if we have to figure something out here down the road, we can. But this is an opportunity to make our team as strong as we can. And... You know, I think we I think we had seventy thousand in 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 full season cap space when we did that trade or something. It was a crazy <laughs> tight number, but we knew that number and we were we were prepared. And again, it was a great a great collaborative effort by everyone with our scouts and coaches and 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 Mike and, and the manager group. So it was a lot of fun to do that with Lawrence and you know to see that that you know we were able to really contribute to the success that the team had. Uh, that's fantastic, Jonathan. Really appreciate the insight and the look back at uh, all of your experiences with the Canucks. We really appreciate the time. We'll let you get back to your day, and uh, hopefully we'll you, we'll see you in September in Penticton. Absolutely. That sounds good. Thanks for the time, guys. That is Jonathan Wall, former director of hockey op- operations, executive director, as you said, uh, transfer for the Vancouver Canucks, and just a long, long-time member uh, of the team's front office. Just hearing him tell that story about executing the Chris Higgins deal and having $70,000 in cap space mid-season in 2011. Well, and that's and that's that's on the uh full season gamut. Like I think on day to day, they were within they were with hundreds of dollars of the of the upper limit. Incredible and stuff. What what popped into my head was the um 
I don't know. Have you seen Uncut Gems with Adam Sandler? Was oh, yeah. the this is how I win meme, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> players win on the ice this is how i win by right. doing the chris higgins deal uh, and having you know hundreds of dollars of daily cap space left over right and you i mean i think you could kind of get a sense of it, it there is an element of competition and constantly striving to okay how can we figure out to absolutely maximize our leverage and our position under the cba i thought that really came through in that story you need to marshal so many different resources in order to win in this league like you have to be efficient in so many different places and we talk about it mostly on the ice right we talk about it mostly in terms of cap spending and contracts and you know uh is this team deep enough on the right side is this team fast enough right i mean we we talk about it in that perspective so often but the perspective of managing the day-to-day the choices you have to make the fact that you make choices to set your roster at the start of the year that could end up making you play a man short play a couple men short, play a, you know, a, a PTO goalie as your backup down the line, right? In the contemporary NHL, teams have decided that they're willing to spend heavily at the top of their roster. And this is across the board. The Maple Leafs get focused on a lot because those are the biggest deals. But I mean, look across the board. Look at the what the Colorado Avalanche are going to look like once McKinnon gets paid with Ranton and, and McCarr. Um, you know, I, I mean, this is a, across the board how teams operate. And part of that means that you have to be extremely flexible and extremely, um, you know, you have to treat the bottom end of your roster as relatively interchangeable and then still cobble together the types of balanced fourth lines that we're discussing that ultimately are a separator between a team like the Avalanche and a team like, you know, the St. Louis Blues or the Calgary Flames. It's riotously complex. And I think as you look through you know, what that 10-11 team was and how it started in the boardroom, I think there's really interesting lessons that can apply to exactly what the next great Canucks team looks like, how it gets built, how it gets run. And just to put a bow on this, I don't think it's a coincidence that the 2022 Stanley Cup final was contested between the two teams that have managed their cap the best especially in the flat cap era, it's sort of put a spotlight on the importance of doing that right. And the way that the Tampa Bay Lightning were able to do it over multiple years, this past season may be their most impressive work, even though they fell two wins short of the the ultimate prize because they had to reconstruct a a bottom six in sort of mid-go. I think there's a very important story within that about how you win in the NHL today and what it takes. And not just managing the cap the best, but a willingness to push the limit and try different things, right? And I think you you heard that captured as well, where he said, we had this kind of light bulb moment. Oh, hey, the way the season schedule sets up for us at the beginning, we can try something that other people haven't tried before. And, and just having the creativity within your front office, but also, and I was trying to kind of get at this with the question about, you know, what are those spitball sessions like in the front office? Having the environment where you can kind of Throw out different ideas and, hey, what about this? What would the ramifications of that be? What if we tried this? What would that do for us down the line? The CBA really creates an environment where you have to have that willingness, at least internally, to talk about those kind of off-the-wall things. Well, and where where the value of that is understood, right? For example, for example, let me give you two really quick Tampa Bay Lightning examples just from the last six months. When the Tampa Bay Lightning trade two firsts for Brandon Hagel, is your reaction, they traded two firsts for a guy I've never heard of, or do you understand that the marginal value of 
you know, adding a top six caliber forward at $1.15 million for this year and the next two is actually greater than adding a better player who makes four times as much. When you're discussing trading Ryan McDonough for nothing of tangible value, is it understood that that $7 million in cap space gained is worth far more to your club than a player, even one as good, you know, even one as warrior-like, as crucial from a leadership perspective as McDonough has been for the Lightning since his acquisition, alongside JT Miller, by the way, from the New York Rangers organization back in 2017. I mean, it's a really fascinating set of decisions that teams face, and the more nuanced your understanding of that value, the better positioned you are as a hockey club, which is sort of one reason too, and we'll get into this in the in the next hour, which is sort of one reason too why it's important to remember as the Canucks enter the next 10 days that whether they trade some of the highly speculated about, you know, top of the lineup caliber forwards that we've been gabbing about maybe being on the block for months now or not, right? You are making a key decision about what you're allocating and where that's going to require, and and more than that, not just going to require, that's going to shape the near-term prospects of this franchise decisively. Whether you whether you make the deals, whether you keep the players, right? You are you are making a key choice, a key choice that's going to require a ton of work to manage. Lots more on the way. The Canucks were, of course, very, very busy on Canada today. We'll talk about the changes to the coaching staff, the Jack Rathbone deal. And of course, what everything means for JT Miller, the eternal talking point. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review if you do enjoy the show. We really appreciate it. Lots more on the way. Keep your text coming in. 650-650. You've got it on the home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650.